Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and you are listening to the Empire and Deep State series with friends of the show over at the American Exception podcast. I'm joined by the author of the book, American Exception, Empire and Deep State. That is Aaron Good. He's a, a scholar of political science and uh, history. And we're also joined by the producer of the American Exception podcast, Seamus McGinnis. This is a discontinuation of the discussion of the Eisenhower administration. We're talking about the history of the U.S. empire. We've already discussed the infamous CIA coups in Iran and in Guatemala in 1953 and 1954. We also talked about the beginning of the U.S. war in Vietnam and the history of French colonialism in Southeast Asia, French Indochina. So you can check out the previous parts. Technically, this is part 16, but we kind of decided that, honestly, the number of the parts kind of is more confusing than helpful. So if you go to the YouTube playlist, I'll have a link below. It has all of the episodes in chronological order, and you can get early access to all of the episodes at Patreon. But the order, you don't need to listen to everything in order to understand. The order can, is only helpful in the sense if you want to go chronologically through this history, Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion of the Eisenhower administration and the history of the U.S. empire. And specifically, we're going to be talking about Indonesia and Egypt. Now, I mentioned that in the previous parts, we talked about the infamous CIA coup in Iran in 1953 and the CIA coup in Guatemala in 1954. Those are pretty well known. But what's not that well known is the history of U.S. imperialism in Indonesia, which is in some ways even more uh, monumental and the influence that that these imperialist meddling policies had in Indonesia, leading up especially to the coup against Sukarno and the genocide in which one to three million people in Indonesia were killed in 1965 and 1966. So in order to understand that history, we also need to understand the the early 20th century, the role of natural resources like gold in Indonesia, and the fact that in the so-called post-colonial world, Indonesia was seen as like this great prize. So, um, Aaron, let's start with, the, we, we again, we talked about Iran, Vietnam, and Guatemala. Now we're talking about Indonesia. How did the, the Eisenhower administration handle this extremely important foreign policy issue? Well, Indonesia is a place that made the Dutch very rich for a long time. It was their prize colony. And uh, as such, it was a major area of contention for during the Cold War. And uh, for Eisenhower uh, and the Eisenhower administration being very loyal to the forces of, you know, big oil and Wall Street, they were uh, very, very focused on Indonesia and how they could bring it over to the U.S. orbit. So uh, the, uh, and a key area which was totally unknown to the public and even to major U.S. statesmen like John Kennedy later, who knows what Eisenhower was actually told about this, uh, and the leader of Indonesia, independent Indonesia uh, itself, um, Sukarno, was not aware of much of the key facts about Indonesia's enormous uh, strategic importance and value to, uh, to, the, to the U.S., so when we're looking at West Papua, uh, you can see on a map that we'll include here in the um, in the PDF that we'll uh, add to this episode here, uh, you can see where the 
um, where the island of West Papua is. I mean, the island, it's like the island is like sometimes called Papua, and then the western half is like West Papua, or it was called West Erian. And there are two key locations, the Grassberg and the Erzberg, which were discovered to have major uh, deposits of uh, gold and copper, and very, 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 very valuable. And they were not exploitable with the technology uh, of the day, but they would be soon. And this was known to people uh, high up in the U.S. deep state. So it ends up setting a stage for really a colonial uh, tragedy, a neo-colonial tragedy in Indonesia, a massacre would eventually unfold. We're not going to get to that today. We're just going to talk about the Eisenhower policies during this time period. But this is really a tragedy, the scope of which really lets you see into the, the dark heart of the American deep state when you look at it, uh, you know, in the long, in the long term. So, um, this really begins with the part of the, we can, we can start the story, you know, who knows where you can start it with Christopher Columbus, you can start it with people going all the way around Africa, you know, in the 1500s and so on, uh, for, and, and, and this is this whole history of U.S. or Western colonialism. But for our purposes, we're going to start it with the creation of the Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company, which was established by corporate lawyer Alan Dulles, uh, who was working for Sullivan and Cromwell and was also a person who had been in the State Department. Um, and this is a, a corporate entity that was 60 percent American and 40 percent Dutch. Okay, Alan Dulles was the top standard oil lawyer in Europe. And uh, he was acting there to advance Standard Oil's interests and they who had been looking to get into these areas. And so uh, they joined forces with the Dutch. And the reason that the Dutch took this step and actually allowed the Americans in when they hadn't in the past is they were worried about Japanese oil exploration in New Guinea. They spooked them and led them to create this, uh, this company, which was controlled ultimately by the U.S., Japanese had big plans for this area as part of their bigger empire. You know, the whole purpose of attacking Pearl Harbor was really to wipe out the U.S. ability to stop them from basically taking over what had been European colonial empires. Like that was the real target. The U.S. wasn't defending democracy or or, or freedom in these places. They were really defending uh, Western colonialism by and large. And even the attack on Pearl Harbor, if you look at the history of that, America's, the U.S. claim to that was very dubious. That was the first government they ever overthrew, and it was really fueled by imperialism and the desire to make a whole lot of money with trade and commerce in East Asia. So the Japanese wanted to basically take over management of this area, and that's what the war in the Pacific was, was largely about. Okay, so they, in 1936, they send out these guys to go explore the the the, the whole area, the area of West, West Papua, this it's called the Karstens Expedition, and this was in response to Japan sending anthropologists to New Guinea. Uh, the Dutch wanted to be the first to climb the highest mountain in Netherlands, New Guinea, as it was called back then. And they discovered, these three Dutchmen discover an outcrop of ore on this mountain with very high copper and very high gold concentration. Uh, that was The gold concentration was actually twice that of the biggest gold mine in the world, which was a, a mine in South Africa at this point. So this was a huge treasure, but it was very remote, very inaccessible and under threat from the, the Japanese empire. So this information uh, that's discovered in 1936 is like dynamite, but it is not, uh, it's kept secret. 
not very many people know about it. Um, they basically go about seeking to uh, hide this. It's an El Dorado of sorts. It's, a, it's the biggest gold mine in human history, and they don't want it to be discovered. Dozy, they got the name of the um, Dutch geologist who made this big discovery, he said there was really no rock. It was just ore. Uh, they found the Grassberg across the metal, and they even put a little time capsule down to uh, mark their discovery that later they had to go back and retrieve. In 1936, these guys return and they write a book on this. And Dozy writes a report in 1939. And it's in English, even though he's a Dutch speaker. And they obscure the value of the uh, gold deposits here by mixing up the English and uh, Dutch ways that you would abbreviate like grams versus grains. And basically, they, they vastly underreported or in a misleading way in the summary, uh, the actual amount of gold that was there. So uh, Dozy later said that many samples came back, extra ones, and what he had found was correct and that it was even better than his initial assessments, but only Dutch officials and the Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company knew about this. And the Netherlands New Guinea Petroleum Company was a standard oil company created by, you know, Alan Dulles and other corporate lawyers. Uh, Dozy later described this, this place as a mountain of gold on the moon, okay, meaning that this is just solid gold, but it is not easy to access, you know, like the moon. So they conceal it. They hide this for <laughs> quite a long time. So, uh, you know, as we're talking about, uh, obviously, Japan's involvement in the Pacific and, and the U.S., are they're clashing over what is seen to be a resource-rich region, but even Sukarno, the eventual independence leader, is not aware of the of the gold mine. And just to drive this home for people, the American Exception audience will be aware of this because we've we've been doing a series about Indonesia. Um, but for the multipolar East audience, um, this is essentially like a one to two trillion dollar heist over the course of twenty years, and. It, it runs the gamut from Dulles and oil companies all the way through, you know, uh, uh, the UN and Dog Hammarskjöld. And we probably won't get to a lot of that, but I just want to like, this is uh, Indonesia is already a sort of criminally undertold story in the pantheon of like American Cold War history. But this angle specifically uh, adds a lot of motivation as to why you would wipe out a million to, to three million uh, supposed communists or, or, or just innocent people uh, in Indonesia is that, uh, uh, of course, these people would because they stood, stood to gain everything, a unimaginable amount of wealth, bigger than most countries' economies. So, uh, you know, that totally changes the look of what's happening here, even though that's kept very quiet. And like he said, it, it, it was hidden from pretty much everyone except a few people in the Netherlands. Uh, who really couldn't do that much about it as much as they tried to. And then also U.S. presidents, uh, you know, JFK was was unaware of it, for example. So it was kept under wraps and was sort of a 25-year geopolitical heist that we probably, you know, that there's very few things that are comparable, uh, probably the closest being the Congo. But you know, so uh, having, you know, uh, the intelligence services and, and the Rockefellers are aware of this, you know, essentially, like you said, a mountain of gold on the moon. Uh, so what does that have in terms of an impact on the course of Indonesian history after World War II? Well, it, it puts Indonesia in the center of kind of a, a perfect storm 
that it doesn't even really understand it itself completely because the res this resource this resource angle is unknown to them. But Sukarno himself was an independent nationalist uh, who didn't want to be a part of the communist. You know, he didn't want to be a Soviet satellite, and he didn't want to be a U.S. neo colony. Um, that is just which which has made him already kind of a target of the U.S. empire. Um, he was the person behind the non-aligned movement. Um, and in 1955, he was the host of the Bandung Conference, which invited other leaders from the third world to come to Indonesia and discuss their plans to uh, set out to build, the, to, to chart an independent course away from U.S. domination or Soviet domination. So they, they were for decolonization first. And they wanted to avoid neo-colonization. So Ban, uh, Sukarno became a lightning rod for these kinds of people. And he was identified by people like Richard Nixon as basically a nationalist, not a communist, which is accurate. But, of course, there are problems with this. Uh, other sponsors of the Bandung Conference were Burma, in India, Indonesia, Pakistan, and Sri Lanka. So places with uh, really long, serious colonial histories. And Egypt. And Egypt as well. Yeah, Egypt was an attendee, uh, and so they, this was this was the non-aligned movement uh, that em that emerged in the 1950s, and this is really the precursor to what we're seeing today with this push towards multipolarity. So this is an important area to understand, and it's important to see what happened to these people and to see why the U.S. is so opposed to multipolarity. U.S. wants unipolarity. They'll tolerate biopolarity you know, bipolarity, which they had under the Cold War, but they didn't like that. They actually sought to bring about the end of the Soviet Union to establish unipolarity. Uh, but that that particular initiative is falling apart as we speak. And so we should go back and look at this time period to understand the threat that unipolarity is perceived as by U.S. empire. Um, at, during this conference, the U.S. using um, people like uh, assets like the KMT, you know, in Air America, the heroin trafficking KMT CIA airline, they uh, planted a bomb on the Kashmir princess that was supposed to take Zhou Enlai, a Chinese, a Chinese high official. I think he may have been the premier at the time, right? That was his title, but he was like generally considered like the number two behind Mao uh, in, in the People's Republic of China. Uh, he some, for some reason, he switches planes and he makes it there safely. And the people on the Kashmir princess uh, get killed when the bomb explodes that was planted by, you know, KMT CIA assets. Uh, but he's able, Joe and Lai is able to make it to uh, Bandung. And this whole movement, the non-aligned movement, evolves into the, or the, the Bandung conference gives rise to the non-aligned movement. They eventually re release this 10-point declaration on promotion of world peace and cooperation. And if you look at them, they are essentially arguing for things very similar to what China is arguing now, and even what Putin has called for as well, um, which is respect for human rights and support for the UN Charter. I mean, it's easy to say now that like the Ukraine war represents this violation of the UN Charter, which is not a hard case to make, but so did the Maidan coup. Uh, and so there we are. But in generally speaking, these are the forces who want international law to prevail and well, whereas the U.S. wants, just as it did back then, although they didn't use this phrase then, they want the rules-based international order to prevail, which is essentially meaning that the U.S. gets to act as the globo sovereign who can decide when international law will be ignored. Okay, Of course, a rules-based order in which the West, specifically the U.S., makes the rules and orders everyone around. 
Yes. I mean, any any prevailing regime can be called a rules-based order. It's just, what does that really obscure in terms of who's making the rules? I mean, I know this is like the example you're not supposed to trot out, but there was a rules-based order in, uh, you know, Nazi Germany. It was called like the Fuhrer Principle. Okay. Not saying the U.S. is exactly Hitler or whatever, but like the idea of like, oh, it's a rules-based order. So that's somehow good is like, this is very silly. But they, the, what they were calling for was, well, you can see it here, the non-interference in internal affairs, no coercion or exploitation of collective defense by great powers brings NATO to mind, of course. Uh, non-aggression, international cooperation, respect for justice and international law, self-determination, uh, equality of races and nations, all these things. These are, uh, th these are keys to what the, the multipolar, the multipolar movement that's emerging is also calling for. So this is very relevant to today. Um, now, the CIA did not like these people. Uh, you, you see here some of the main uh, people who were the statesmen who were really alarming the CIA during this time period. You had uh, Nehru, Kwame Nkrumah, who was the head of the first uh, decolonized country in Africa, Ghana, um, Nasser of Egypt, uh, Sukarno and then Tito of Yugoslavia, who kind of broke with the Soviet Union over the issue of Greek, uh, the Greek Civil War. He basically wanted to support the Greek Civil War and Stalin said, hey, we agreed to, uh, you know, during Yalta, et cetera, that we weren't going to control Greece. So no, we're not going to do this. Stop. This led to a, a split in the communist world with Yugoslavia being essentially part of the non-aligned movement, not a Soviet satellite anymore after this. So Sukarno, as recognized as a ringleader of this movement, well, you know, he uh, engendered the antipathy of the Central Intelligence Agency and the American deep state. They tried to kill him, um, as they like to do. At one point, they uh, tried to kill him in a schoolyard by throwing th five grenades uh, at him. And I think this ended up actually killing some children. And uh, his, his own children attended this school. So this actually was very uh, alarming and uh, disturbing for Sukarno. He had something of a nervous breakdown after this or a kind of depression because of this. And uh, all indications are that this was the CIA-backed Darul Islam group uh, who they, you know, the CIA, as we talked about elsewhere, uh, and I've talked about a lot, the CIA uses these Islamists as their, you know, useful, violent idiots around the world. Uh, you know, this, this is, they inherited that practice from the British, and we'll talk more about that later. Um, but they attempted to kill Sukarno this way. Uh, they, they took other measures against Sukarno during the 50s, including the production of a strange porno movie where they made a weird mask for, this was like before they had deep fakes. You know, they made a weird mask of Sukarno and they put it on one of their employees, or maybe it's a contract guy they just hired for a day, a, a rent-a-penis of sorts. Uh, they had him put on this mask and uh, have sex with this blonde woman. And they filmed it. And they, the idea was they were going to say this was a Soviet agent. And look, look at Sukarno. He's so terrible having sex with this blonde Russian. He's, he's, he's out of control. But then they never aired the video. They, they, I guess they did focus group testing of a sort. And they found out that Indonesians either shrugged or maybe they even thought they made Sukarno look cool. And whatever reason, they abandoned this project. But this is, this shows you the how Sukarno was rep represented a threat to the U.S. deep state and their plans for the world. So if the CIA failed to assassinate Sukarno there, you know, they didn't just give up, of course. Uh, so what did they do to keep meddling in Indonesian politics? Well, this is a this all leads to a very strange episode in CIA history 
uh, that people are still trying to suss out. Um, it's kind of a controversial thing here on the whole. Uh, it's known as the Promesta Rebellion or the Outer Islands Rebellion. And it was the brainchild of Alan Bellis. And it also involved people uh, that were working for the Rand Corporation like Guy Palker. Um, and there's the Rand offices. Uh, you might be able to say, you might have seen the Rand offices in the picture. I think that's where Ellsberg was working out in California back when he leaked the Pentagon Papers. Um, and the, the, the issue is Papua, really, what it was all about. Uh, but the shorter term issues had to do with elections in Indonesia. So in 1955, you had uh, not only the Bandung Conference, but you had Indonesia elections. Uh, and the Bandung thing was like 29 neutral Afro-Asian nations were there, as, we, as I mentioned, kind of frightening to the U.S. establishment. But these elections in Indonesia in 1955 also uh, led to gains in the PKI uh, in terms of their representation in the Indonesian government. They finished fourth overall. And the PKI were the Indonesian communists, and they weren't so much a doctrinaire communist uh, organization that was totally in the sway of Moscow or or, or Beijing, but they were, uh, and they and they weren't even exactly a, a unified communist with like a coherent Marxist ideology. Although they were generally, they were vaguely Marxist, but they were largely landless peasants who just wanted a change to the status quo. They were rice farmers who. Uh, had a hard time being able to farm enough rice because of, you know, the land tenure and other arrangements there that were so unfair and kind of brutal for them. So the PKI's strong finish was scary to the U.S. And so this rebellion was a way to try to um, stop the other elections from happening that would lead to further gains. So that's part of the goal here by fomenting this rebellion in the Outer Islands. The Outer Islands' a basic beef with the central government is of Indonesia is that, that too much money is spent in Jakarta and not enough on the outer islands and they wanted more. So the CIA, uh, you know, Dulles and Guy Pauker of Rand and University of California, Berkeley, uh, they exploited this to foment this rebellion. They, had, they prevented the 1959 election from happening because of this chaos. And uh, they were able also to convince a rebel leader that the PKI should be listed as one of their major beefs with Jakarta and Sukarno. So the question is, what was this thing really about? And it doesn't seem that they were trying to get rid of Sukarno uh, or, or even trying to break up the islands. So a lot of my information on this comes from Greg Polgrain's book, uh, JFK versus Alan Dulles. And Polgrain is a history professor in Australia and he concludes that the whole purpose of this operation was not uh, to overthrow the government or to separate, break up Indonesia. The real goal was to unify the Indonesian military. So to centralize the Indonesian military command for two purposes. First of all, for a campaign against Netherlands, New Guinea, West Papua, where all the gold was, and also where oil was, which was discovered in 1941, and then also kept secret enormous deposits of very pure oil, almost no sulfur, did not need to be refined. And it was also on West Papua, discovered by uh, the U.S. military and people like MacArthur knew about it, but they didn't even use it. They kept it secret and it would stay the secret until the 70s when it became like the biggest uh, oil, uh, biggest performing oil well in this in this area, in this whole region of the world, Southeast Asia. 
So they wanted to centralize the Indonesian military for this campaign to kick the Dutch out because the U.S. is like the manager of neocolonialism. But these other places like the Dutch, there's other countries like the Dutch, they wanted to hold on to uh, as much as they could in the third world. And the U.S. wasn't having that. So the U.S. at times intervenes in ways to consolidate and do a hostile takeover of other areas of other Western countries' imperial sphere of influence. This is the transition from colonialism to neocolonialism, which the U.S. called decolonization. Okay, so not only were, was this a way to this Outer Islands Rebellion, this huge CIA operation was a way to uh, centralize the Indonesian military in order to oust the Dutch from Netherlands New Guinea, but it also would pave the way later for regime change because if the regime, if the, if the military is centralized and now under the command of like certain military leaders, then you have the opportunity to turn the military against Sukarno possibly, which is what they end up doing uh, later in 1965. So this is the real purpose of this. And this isn't just Polgrain saying this, you can actually come at this through other um, readings of, of other parts of the literature. Mark Curtis, who writes a lot about the British support of Islamists and the use of Islamists, he points out this whole time period where the British were also working with Darul Islam to try to take out Sukarno. And he points out that the Outer, Outer Islands Rebellion was not really a, an attempt to, um, he, he says that it was perhaps an attempt at regime change, but that they didn't really want to go against the territorial integrity of Indonesia, which begs the question of like what, how they actually thought to do. And it doesn't really make, that these angles don't make sense in the Mark Curtis version, but they are resolved by Greg Polgrain's interpretation of this, which is that it was a way to take control of West Papua and set the groundwork for regime change. Uh, and this, this was the purpose of it. So it was a huge CIA operation that on paper seems to have failed, but actually when you look at it in the long run, did, did what it was supposed to do. And zooming out a little bit and, and talking about uh, consolidating power in the military, of course, part of that is uh, the interplay between U.S. aid in materiel and then from the Soviets. And the Soviets were giving a lot of aid to, I believe, the Air Force at the time. So the, the, the U.S. had to kind of consolidate their form of power in the, in the army. They eventually start training them, I believe, in, in Kansas, uh, like military officers. But also just uh, broadly, uh, we see this in this situation and then later in a border dispute with Malaysia uh, and, and by extension the British, that as you, know, you, you ratchet up sort of nationalist sentiments, it also gives the ability for the army to sort of instrumentalize that for their own ends and to drum up a lot of more anti-communist sentiment and certain fears that get played upon in the, in the genocide. And it just ratchets up the tension uh, in country. And, uh, and, and by sort of causing these destabilizations around the borders, so in Netherlands, New Guinea, and the, the island disputes over the elections, you know, we see that today that the U.S. has telegraphed that's what it wants to do with China on its borders is to destabilize uh, Central Asia. I, and there are several scholars that, you know, even Joe Biden has praised at Harvard that have written about that very explicitly. That's what Brzezinski did with the Soviets. There's an understanding that if you destabilize the borders and you force a sort of mobilization as a response, big picture geopolitically, that's always going to lead to some form of, uh, of destabilization that you can then take advantage of with a reactionary movement, whether that's military, whether that's, you know, just the far right. 
same thing at a, at a certain point. But, um, you know, on, on just a larger scale, the, the CIA is figuring out and the U.S. in general is figuring out that you don't necessarily have to pull off a Guatemala Guatemala style operation right off the bat. And in fact, you can't in a country as big as Indonesia, of course, like fifth highest population at the time or something like that. And, and so, it, you know, we're talking about a different size, but at the same time, you can't push around the Netherlands like this either because, uh, you know, Europe has more of a power base and, and also more social democratic aims that you aren't necessarily going to, you know, invade the Netherlands unless it's to go to the Hague, of course. <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, we have a sense that we don't want it to be controlled by the Netherlands, the, the gold mine I'm talking about, because they might want to pass the wealth around to their people as opposed to pushing around what we see as just sort of a weak third world country, to, regardless of how you know, large it is. Um, we can sort of just demand that it be privatized, that all the money go off to the Rockefellers and no questions asked, no, no harm, no fall. So I, I think that is sort of the, the calculation going on here of trying to undermine the Netherlands and also uh, undermine Sukarno by ratcheting up the tension in country. But uh, Ben, I know you have like a, a question to go off that here. Yeah, uh, Aaron, we've talked about this before in terms of going chronologically through the Eisenhower administration and some of its foreign policy. Some of this, these CIA operations are also related to the story that gave us this infamous term tanky, right? Uh, so in 1956, there was an attempted uprising in Hungary that was led by very a lot of right-wing elements, especially elements that had been followers of Miklos Horthy, who had been the fascist dictator that was a Nazi collaborator who ruled Hungary during World War II, the so-called Hortyites, who were you know fascists and anti-Semites, and they portrayed the communist government in Hungary as like a Jewish plot and all this stuff. And, and we know that there was CIA involvement. And what's funny is, if you say this today, you're called a tanky. And it's funny how the term tanky has become so mainstream that the New York Times has used this term. Originally, of course, tanky goes back to 1956 when there were splits in the Communist Party over people who had said that obviously it was a counter-revolution happening in Hungary backed by Western intelligence. We now have evidence showing that that analysis is correct historically, whereas the people who opposed the operation, uh, the, the Soviet military intervention, uh, Hungary was not part of the Soviet Union, but Hungary was part of the Warsaw Pact. The people who opposed that said that the others were tankies, right? So it refers to this particular historical moment. And now it's just become such a bastardized term that it basically means anyone who criticizes U.S. foreign policy is a tanky, including they call Noam Chomsky a tanky, even though Noam Chomsky was himself one of the most vicious critics of the Soviet Union throughout the first Cold War. And I should just also add that it's so funny because people will say, what is a tanky? And other people will say, it's a Stalinist. But it was actually not Joseph Stalin. It was Khrushchev, the like or anti-Stalin figure. Like he, he oversaw the process of de-Stalinization. It was the Khrushchev government that oversaw the intervention in Hungary. So anyway, I mean, this history, ironically, even though it's so little understood, it's, there's very little known about it, it's become this kind of very influential historical moment in terms of today's political culture because it, it gives rise to this ridiculous political slur that has become so prominent that pundits at the Washington Post and the New York Times and Bloomberg constantly use it.
Yeah, that's a very interesting phenomenon and uh, something that I've, I've thought about uh, recently, and it just seems you know kind of comical to me. If you recall, uh, recently Kit Clarenberg wrote a story about where they they had these emails from Paul Mason, who'd been working with some uh, British spooks. Uh, to basically go after anti-war outlets, you know, like uh, like Gray Zone and so on. And they, at some point in the exchange of emails, they say, we really want to make sure that an anti-imperialist identity doesn't emerge. And so I think that that's instructive when you want to understand why all of a sudden are outlets like the New York Times and people who like pretend to be like serious commentators, you, you know, your various imperial PR flacks in the U.S. establishment, why are they saying like tanky, like they're they're using sort of a juvenile catty sort of insult that is uh, th that's not really appropriate for this social setting, right? They're supposed to be like serious people, not like uh, people who are like bullying other kids, other junior high kids on social media. It's like, why are they calling people tankies? And I think really what it comes down to is you, you say tanky because the anti-imperialist identity is what they really are. They don't, they would need to disparage this. They need to like name it. And, and other it to people. And so they don't mind, they're, they're actually, they don't mind seeming like sort of unserious, kind of like bitchy, petty people by saying like, tanky, tanky, because they don't want to actually say like, these are anti-imperialists, because this is really the heart of the whole project that they're upholding. And so they, they even naming the, naming what this is, is anathema to them. Now, as far as the irony- yeah, I'm sorry to cut you off really quickly. I mean, I know you're, you are going to have like a more serious discussion of the history of the Eisenhower administration, and the CIA. But just while we're on this subject, I mean, the way Tanky is discussed is clearly it, it means an, a leftist who's anti-imperialist, who's against U.S. imperialism. Because here's like here's this 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 uh, is a funny thing that like went viral on Twitter with like, you know, uh, it got ratioed. And it's this anarchist saying what I hope when people say they're a communist and it's all of these white European or U.S. anarchists, well, excluding Rosa Luxemburg and Marx, they just throw in there, like Kropotkin, who was himself a, a prince, like a feudal royal in the Russian monarchy. I also have uh, Bookchin, Murray Bookchin, who supported Zionism and U.S. imperialism. They have uh, Bakunin, who ironically was a hardcore anti-Semite. They have David Graeber, who like supported the U.S. military occupation of Syria. And then they say what they mean in reality and they're talking about and and then the on the tweet the tweet they wrote f tankies and then what they mean in reality and they have thomas sankara from burkina faso they have che guevara they have kim from dprk they have xi jinping and then of course they have stalin they also have angles which is funny like they, they for some reason they think like marx is different from angles anyway whatever these people are dumb but what it really, this really shows to me is Tanky means specifically an anti-imperialist socialist and specifically one in the global south. If you're in the global south and you oppose U.S. imperialism, you're a tanky. That's what it's come to mean. I just wanted to point that out because there's a key also just like a racist element in this today. If you're a black or brown socialist in the global south, you're a tanky by definition. Right. I mean, these are I, I feel like this is an online thing that is very suspicious in terms of like who would actually be supporting this i mean I, I think it's not literally true that like oh yeah these people have to be all feds but i think that probably the the origin of this becoming like a current of of 
uh, you know, thought that you see on, on Twitter is not a natural thing because if you're a leftist uh, and you're a person who's like actually holds sort of leftist uh, emancipatory political ideas, you're not going to be fixating on the enemies of the most powerful and uh, wealthy capitalist empire in history. That was just, just doesn't make any sense. So I'm very suspicious of that. But the actual getting back to the the tanky term, um, it the the it, it comes it reemerges from you know it has its origins in the 50s and it relates to that Hungary uprising where they sent in the tanks. But this is another case where it's a CIA covert operation to back these elements um, in in Hungary, and it was this was overseen by, as I understand it, Frank Wisner. And he felt very, he was really racked with guilt after the CIA didn't, and the U.S. did not intervene in this country, which because that would have meant World War III. And so, you know, wiser people prevailed, but they did destabilize the country enough to provoke a response. And they, um, they as a result, this, this uprising gets crushed. And then the U.S. just sort of makes uh, good propaganda out of that and says, look how, look how brutal the Soviets are. But the, you know, the U.S. wouldn't tolerate uh, Russian destabilization of their own, of their near abroad. You know, like, look at what, look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, and, but, and for Frank Wisner himself, this led to his uh, suicide, but it wasn't just that. He also was, um, Frank Wisner is, uh, I have pictures of Frank Wisner. And he was uh, one of the top guys. He was the guy that was running essentially the dirty tricks department of the CIA uh, initially, which was the Office of Policy Coordination. And he was overseeing this big operation, uh, the Outer Islands Rebellion. And I don't know that he was exactly informed that it was meant to fail after a certain point. Um, it was, so he, he again is sort of hung out to dry here. It was the second biggest CIA operation, the one in Indonesia by Frank Wisner, the guy that had, you know, been behind the Hungary uprising, which later gave rise to the tanky meme when the Soviets intervened to predictably crush it. Okay, but here he's part of the CIA operation in Indonesia following this, which was the second biggest covert operation besides what they were doing in Vietnam. I mean, let's say CIA operation because they had huge operations in Vietnam. Only this one was close in terms of its size. Uh, there were small arms and warships, submarines, air support. And this is uh, the Dulles foreign policy, the Dulles brothers uh, of Sullivan and Cromwell and then State Department and CIA under Eisenhower. This is their policy for Indonesia. Uh, although it's questionable as to how much John Foster even really understood Alan Dulles's long game on this. It's, uh, Greg Polgrain has an interesting material on this, but I think Alan Dulles was really operating on a different plane than John Foster Dulles, who was more of a concrete thinker and a Christian fundamentalist, uh, but also, you know, dedicated U.S. imperialist and Sullivan Cromwell partner. Um, now, the way that this all uh, fails is you have you have some debacles on the U.S. side. Two bombers explode. You have um, this the capture of a main weapon drop, and in a way, you needed this whole thing to fail. Dulles needed the Outer Islands Rebellion to ultimately fail. Uh, and that it needed to be perceived as a failure as such. And in this way, he may have actually deceived John Foster Dulles. This is kind of similar to the Bay of Pigs, where it turned out that the CIA actually never thought that there could be a popular uprising. They just wanted to use this as a way to, to put leverage on Kennedy to get him to intervene militarily. 
Um, and it's also similar to the Gary Powers incident, as you'll see. This guy crashes from the sky and kind of messes up Eisenhower's peace conference later in Eisenhower's administration. We may talk about that again. But uh, the whole thing fails uh, eventually. The CIA operation fails. All right. So how and why then does the CIA's rebellion fail? And in talking about this, uh, one parallel here that maybe listeners could keep in mind is Eugene Hassenfuss, or I don't know how to say his name, but the pilot who was shot down uh, that sort of kicked off Iran-Contra. Just keep them, you know, rattling around in the back of your back of your brain when when we're talking about this. Yeah, so Hassenfuss is a different case because I had never seen any kind of explanation that said that he was supposed to crash, like he was supposed to be the kicker on that plane for the Iran Contra, and he actually gets shot down in a legitimate way. In the Indonesian case, the failure is a little different, but there is a Hassenfuss type character, as as you'll see. Uh, the a main actor here is this fellow Nasushin, who's a high-ranking and loyal Indonesian military officer. Greg Polgrain had a number of conversations with him. And uh, a turning point in this whole rebellion is in March of 1958, and he's able to find, uh, to capture this huge seizure of arms. And the way that he is able to do this is a U.S. military attache to Indonesia um, is giving him hot information, okay? Cottrell, uh, according to Nasution, Cottrell had prior knowledge of this arms drop in the early hours of March 12th, and he called him, uh, this U.S. military attache, Sterling Cottrell, calls Nasution four times on March 11th, and the fourth time is very urgent and anxious, and he's saying, send troops to this Pekanabaru airfield. So Nasution does this and puts these paratroopers on standby, and when they get reports of a four-engine plane in the area, the paratroopers land on the airfield and capture this huge arms drop-off that had been uh, put there by a, D a Douglas DC-4. And it seems that Cottrell should have been in contact with the CIA channel that was at the U.S. Embassy, and then he passes this on. So this is sort of the CIA, probably Alan Dulles, undermining a CIA operation because that's part. Of, it's being undermined as part of the actual plan. Um, the KMT was a part of this operation. They were actually helping the, the rebels as well. And a couple months later in May, you have uh, the kind of the decisive moment of this, which is the uh, capture of Alan Pope, who's a CIA pilot. And he is shot down reportedly, although it's a very strange thing, and captured by the Indonesians. And he had 30 documents with him which is bad spy craft. You're not supposed to be carrying all these documents with you when you go around like this. It suggests that this was meant to be discovered. Uh, initially, the whole story is very strange. It was supposedly one bullet that brought down the plane. Um, the soldier testified to this effect and Pope's testimony also. Other historians would later say it was anti-aircraft carrier, but they're kind of to my understanding, my understanding is they're basically making up the evidence for this and that it, it just because the original story that came out in court is kind of hard to believe. Uh, so but but there's not but that that's that's what the evidence says. So Pope said that the bullet hit the, the fuel tank flames appear in the cockpit. He then ascends to 6000 feet and then parachutes with his Indonesian co-pilot. As a result, a couple days later. U.S. support for this uprising officially ends. The U.S. had been denying they were involved here. The U.S. was saying, we're not involved in your this conflict. This is an Indonesian thing. But then when Pope crashes with all these documents, they can no longer deny it. 
So that was this the CIA scuttling it on purpose with using Pope to do this? It, it looks that way. Um, one of the Indonesian officials said to Greg Polgrain, the Americans basically tricked us with this. Uh, the U.S. unofficially continued the support of the of the war of the rebellion, but at a very low level, just to keep the uh, sort of pressure on the military to further centralize. And here's a picture of uh, Nasution later, which will be included in the notes here of meeting with Robert Kennedy. Later, Ken it's Robert Kennedy that actually negotiates the release of Alan Pope. The Kennedys sought a, took a different approach to Indonesia which was abandoned, of course, tragically after Kennedy's assassination, which Sukarno believed was a result of his Indonesia policy. I, I wouldn't put that fine a point on it, but just to give you some spoilers here, that's what Sukarno comes to believe later. Aaron, how did this fiasco of the Outer Islands Rebellion impact U.S.-Indonesia relations going forward? And again, this is, we should always keep in mind, this is setting the stage eventually for one of the worst atrocities in modern in 20th century history the cia said itself that the massacre in 65 and 66 in which one million to, two, to three million people were killed leftists and communists were murdered the cia played a key role in that massacre so clearly the u.s government is leaning very heavily against sukarno but the point is at least um internationally how did this fiasco impact u.s indonesia relations well i'll start off with this uh using a quote from the incomparable L. Fletcher Prouty, who was the uh, Pentagon or the, uh, the Pentagon's focal point officer coordinating uh, the military uh, support for CIA covert operations. So he knew a lot about CIA covert operations. He actually wrote an article on this whole episode uh, in Indonesia, really one of the better articles that you could read uh, in the 70s. I believe he wrote this in the later 70s. I wrote it in like a skin magazine because that's how it worked back then. It wasn't the internet. So you had to find publishers in strange places. And that's what he did. He So this guy, L. Fletcher Prouty, who was involved in this, he's he's portrayed in JFK by Do Donald Sutherland. He's the X character. Uh, but he talked about Indonesia and this, this operation. And he said about it, it seemed the more the CIA failed, the more it grew and prospered. And so the CIA, for, from the CIA perspective, this is just an operation that's represents, uh, you know, another line along the continuity of the growth and power of the clandestine state of the United States. For the U.S. long-term plans, it's an interesting quote from the Assistant Secretary for International Security Affairs, Affairs uh, Mansfield Sprague, and he said, um, in, this is in March of 1958, as, you know, some of this, these operations are in their later stages. Um, he said, in, con in consideration of current U.S. military plans, there are no specific U.S. military requirements in Indonesia or West New Guinea. However, encroachments by the Sino-Soviet bloc would disrupt the United States policy on communist containment in the Far East and would partially isolate Australia. Domination of this area by the Sino-Soviet bloc would deny the United States and make available to China and the USSR certain rich nat national resources. This is a reference to the enormous uh, wealth of we uh, West New Guinea, Western West Papua, um, that the that these some of the people in the national security state are aware of, but that other key actors in Indonesia and the United States are unaware of, and they just obliquely refer to this as certain national, rich national resources. So this is important uh, to understand in terms of what the U.S.'s plans are. Now, 
the 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 Eisenhower administration is winding down its you know it, its reign at the in the as this operation is also winding down. But Alan Dulles had set the stage for what he wanted to do. He wanted to eventually affect. He wanted to uh, con control the transition of West Papua, West Irian, to the control of the Indonesians. And then once that is done, uh, use the centralized Indonesian military to overthrow Sukarno and replace him with a U.S. puppet. But the problem was there was a new president coming in after Eisenhower, John Kennedy, who had different plans. And so this becomes a major uh, point of tension But as Kennedy confronts the American deep state. We'll get into that on a later episode. But this whole episode uh, with the Outer Islands Rebellion and the Indonesia policy under Eisenhower, uh, this was pivotal in terms of the eventual outcome for Indonesia uh, that we'll get into at a later date. And this is just more examples of clandestine, top-down, Wall Street overworld influence uh, and control over the U.S. empire in a way that's totally undemocratic and very much imperial and lawless. And uh, this is, so this is a really important chapter to understand uh, the history of the U.S. empire. And uh, I will come back to Indonesia and we'll see how this is of, of a piece with other aspects of the uh, Eisenhower era U.S. empire. So there's still a lot more to say about Indonesia. I mean, this, we've been referencing the 65-66 massacre of the genocide, which the CIA directly supported. And then the CIA also admitted it was one of the bloodiest atrocities of the 20th century. There's a lot more to get to. I know we're going to come back to Indonesia when we talk about JFK and LBJ. But there's another country that was pivotal in the non-aligned movement. We talked about the, role, the leadership role of Sukarno of Indonesia in helping to create the non-aligned movement. Another leader was Nasser, the leftist anti-imperialist leader of Egypt. And Egypt was also targeted by the Eisenhower administration. So let's, let's, we talked about Iran, Guatemala, Vietnam, Indonesia. Now let's talk about Egypt and Eisenhower's foreign policy. Yeah, Egypt is today a pivotal area. And back then it was too in terms of uh, global geopolitics. And uh, this had long been a key point of the British Empire uh, to maintain control over Egypt because Egypt is where the Suez Canal was. And the Suez Canal uh, was the main entry for uh, to get to British colonies in India, to get to Britain's big gas station uh, in Iran later, and to uh, deal with the China trade in opium, which has uh, made the empire extremely rich around the same time that the U.S., or that the, the British Empire dialed down the uh, slave trade, which it had had a monopoly on until it didn't, uh, and then it, and then it crushed the transatlantic slave trade. Slave trade. Then the U.S. Then the top imperial cash cow for Britain was the opium trade, which involved a sort of trade between British holdings in India and then selling opium to the Chinese. Suez Canal later become when it gets put in when it's completed becomes important for that too, as I understand it. And uh, in the 1950s, you had this guy named uh, Nasser who comes to power. Uh, the U.S. in the region had, had supported Israel in 1948. And so this was not popular among Egyptians and especially nationalists. Nationalism in Egypt had been brewing for a while before World War II. Afterwards, with decolonization, it was kind of a matter of time before the puppet monarch of Egypt, this King Farouk fellow, would get deposed. And he did in 1952 
a coup uh, led by Abdel Nasser, a general in the Egyptian military. And he was a nationalist, um, not a communist, but someone who favored socialist you know, economic uh, plans. And he also promoted pan-Arabism, or you could call it Nasserism sometimes. This just meant he thought that the, the Middle East and the Arab world had been dominated and used as imperial pawns for too long. And he wanted to change that. And he supported nationalism across Arabia, uh, you know, and, uh, and Egypt, Syria was on the side of Nasser for a while. So this was uh, a guy whose plans were terrifying to the people, to the Anglo-US empire. Uh, in 1954, he's consolidated his power, and uh, he want, he sets up a secular socialist government. He enacted land reform, and he uh, he made it clear that Egypt was going for sovereignty over the Suez Canal. In the 1950s, if you uh, want to take look at that bellwether of the American deep state, Time Magazine, whose publisher is like uh, the American Century guy, pretty much a PR man for the American deep state, uh, they have a cover with Nasser on it. And when I first saw this the other day, uh, I don't know why I never Googled it before because time is always so useful. But uh, when I first brought it up, I thought, well, that's surprisingly, um, you know, reasonable for Time Magazine, just a picture of Nasser smiling and uh, it's not as over the top. But then I look in the background and there's these like Egy ancient Egyptian uh, carvings where that have where a, it wasn't Photoshop back then, right? But they have them holding like a, a rifle with a bayonet and a Molotov cocktail. And so you're already getting the sort of like low-key Orientalism uh, on display here uh, for Time magazine. Uh, and I, I think that you're supposed to be a little bit scared of us, the swarthy primitive people of, you know, out there in non-America, non-Europe. Uh, that's, that's a part of what's going on. So Nasser's a, a, a fly in the ointment for these people and all their plans. Yeah, and this leads up to the Suez Crisis in 1956, in in which again the these European colonial powers are trying to control the Suez Canal. It's also where Israel starts playing a key role in these destabilization operations, basically as a Western colony in the heart of West Asia. But yeah, what's interesting about Nasser is he was himself, of course, a Muslim, but he was also deeply secular. He was not antagonistic to Islam, but he was not an Islamist. He didn't want Islam to be involved in the political system. And this is where you start seeing the birth of British and U.S. intelligence agencies supporting Islamist groups, political is, is, groups that support political Islam. Not, again, Nasser was a Muslim, but this is where you start seeing the U.S. and the British Empire supporting these Islamist groups. And of course, that has huge repercussions for today because this eventually leads to Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the Taliban, which were also fostered and sponsored by CIA and MI6. So anyway, talk more about Nasser's policies. And, uh, you know, people probably have seen there's these famous videos of him where uh, he's arguing with, uh, you know, religious ideologues about who, who want to force their daughters to wear a hijab veil. And then he says, well, why don't you force your own daughters to wear a hijab and tell them they can't get education? So he, he did have this very, like, progressive form of uh, you know nationalism and a progressive interpretation of Islam, and we know that the U.S. empire has been waging war against any kind of progressive form of Islam for decades because progressive forms of Islam tend to be associated with anti-imperialism. So that's why they want the reactionary medieval forms that support imperialism. 
Right. And you, you have to go back to the Brits to see how the U.S. picked up this policy. The, the Brits supported the original uh, jihadi international Islamist guy whose name was uh, Alef Ghani and who apparently was a, an atheist who actually and uh, who believed that you should just use religion to manipulate people for social purposes and social control. Um, and there's a, sort of a straight line leading up to uh, the, the sort of infamous group that gets established by the Brits in 1928. And that would be the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is founded in 1928 by the, with a, a land grant from the Suez Canal Company, which is you know, a, a major part of the British Empire. And uh, why would these Brits who are running this imperial project, which is not decidedly not Islamist, you know, it's not like London, the Queen is, has converted to Islam, so why there, are they uh, supporting in creating and backing this Muslim Brotherhood group. And it was a way to counter nationalists and socialists who would be against the British, against British rule. You create this other force that's not, they, who doesn't profess loyalty to Britain or imperialism. They pose as anti-imperialists, but they're, they're able to be manipulated by uh, British imperialists. And that's who's ultimately funding them. And this is where you see the parallels between, you know, what Al, what Al-Qaeda ends up doing and, and so on. Um, and one part of this was the secret apparatus of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was essentially a paramilitary or terrorist arm. And the Brits could use them to assassinate leaders. They provided security at King Farouk's, one of King Farouk's like coronation ceremonies. Uh, they were just pawns of uh, the Muslim the Muslim Brotherhood. So the Brits are the originals for this. And they were that that's who the, the British wanted to use against Nasser. So for the U.S., they're going to absorb the British Empire and, and sort of stage a hostile takeover of the British Empire and relegate Britain to kind of sidekick status for the U.S. Empire. And the, the Brits, as you see, try to resist this in some ways, but they're not able to. Um, they were the British and the U.S. likewise were not were threatened a little bit by Nasser's nationalism and for the Brits specifically the nationalization of the Suez Canal. In 1954, Nasser bans the Muslim Brotherhood, who the British had used to try to assassinate Nasser. So Nasser recognized that these guys were British tools and that they were going to kill him if they got the chance. <clears throat> the CIA also wanted Nasser neutralized. So here they are uh, working on the same page. There's a famous picture, or it's not maybe super famous, but it's a notable picture uh, of, the White, of Eisenhower's White House. And he's visiting uh, with people from the Middle East, Muslims. And uh, one of them is Saeed Ramadan, who was the most prominent spokesman of the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1950s and was, uh, according to Swiss intelligence, there was a document found which, which assessed that uh, Ramadan had to have been uh, a CIA agent, essentially, that he was backed by the U.S. So the Muslim Brotherhood at this time is uh, backed by the U.S. And so... Uh, this is a way for the U.S. to weaponize Islam and use it to uh, advance its its goals, just like it backs other people like, you know, Bandera in Ukraine and other Nazis and stuff in Europe and fascists in, from Italy and Japanese ultra-rightists. Uh, anybody uh, who is, is going to help them and be useful as tools to especially go after socialists, they'll make use of. And that's uh, that was the relationship between the Brits and the Muslim Brotherhood. And then later the U.S. picks that up. Yeah, this history is very interesting because today the Muslim Brotherhood has become one of the main political enemies of the Persian Gulf monarchies, especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which declared it to be a so-called terrorist organization. 
Qatar actually is a, the main sponsor, along with Turkey, of the Muslim Brotherhood. So it shows these splits within West Asia and North Africa. But what's interesting is that in the early days, the Muslim Brotherhood helped give birth to a lot of these extremist Islamist groups. And you mentioned Sayyid Ramadan. I mean, he was actually the son-in-law of Hassan Havana, who was the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. And this also gives birth to Sayyid Qutb and eventually Osama bin Laden and others. A name that's come up a lot in the series, of course, Khashoggi. We know that Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed by Saudi Arabia, he was a longtime Muslim Brotherhood activist and was also working with Qatar. And he was also a close friend of Osama bin Laden. And in the 1980s, he was the liaison for the Arab Mujahideen and CIA and Pakistani intelligence ISI and a so-called journalist working for Arab News, which was like a Saudi propaganda mouthpiece. And there's photos of him, black and white photos of Jamal uh, Khashoggi with like an assault rifle with other Mujahideen. So you know, the Muslim Brotherhood has tried to rebrand itself as like more moderate and supporting constitutionalism and bourgeois democracy, especially in Egypt when there was, you know, the first election after the overthrow of Mubarak. And, uh, you know, they said that we believe in bourgeois democracy. It's a complicated, and interesting history. But anyway, we don't have time to get into all of that. I just wanted to mention some of that context because it helps explain the situation we're living in today. Um, but another key historical moment in the Eisenhower administration and also with Nasser was the Suez crisis. Talk about how this was incredibly important, not only for the U.S., but it was also, I think, an important point in which the U.S. empire told the French and British empires who is really boss now. It, it was a moment in which the U.S. empire asserted its hegemony over European imperialism. That's not unlike the situation we see now with Ukraine. Right. The, the, the U.S., as I said, did end up staging a hostile takeover of the British empire. And this uh, there was the sterling pound crisis and uh, the way that the U.S. handled the transition uh, to basically U.S. dollar hegemony and got rid getting rid of the, the sterling area for the Brits. The fact that they never wrote down, they never wrote off the debts from World War One and World War Two. you know, that they insisted on collecting them, which was a departure, a departure from uh, past wars between allies. Um, there's the, the U.S. just essentially took this over through the two world wars resulted in the U.S. taking over the British Empire. That's one big consequence of it. So, but they're still holding on to in the 50s. There's they still have tenuous control over Iran, although that's fading away because of Mossadegh. The coup basically makes it a U.S. puppet instead of a British one uh, in 1953, which we've already talked about. And uh, they also had the Suez Canal, but that was being taken away by this Nasser, Nasser fellow who they really hated. Um, and as a result of, of Nasser's nationalization of the British-owned Suez Canal, you have the Suez Crisis of 1956, which may extend to 1957, but it's uh, usually dated as 1956. And the UK, France, and Israel try to seize the Suez Canal by force. And uh, you can see the uh, path that they take here. And this is a, you look at this map and you think of the strategic importance of these areas and you start to understand why Israel was established as a, as a tool of the British empire initially, why the Balfour declaration would have been issued in the first place. You know, Britain's had all these plans that we've talked about uh, between the wars and then Israel does get established. And here you can see that it can act as a cat's paw against this Nasser fellow and this very strategic region. They, they, they try to seize the canal. 
And this uh, puts Eisenhower in a strange position. Uh, at this point in time, the British prime minister went as far as wanting to get Nasser assassinated. And like, typically these things are not recorded. It's rare that the president uh, is known to have authorized an assassination of a foreign head of state. I think we know that Eisenhower did okay the assassination of Lumumba, but then the official CIA position is that like somebody else did it because they failed, but that's not really plausible. Here you have British Prime Minister Anthony Eden, direct quote. Uh, he says, what's all this nonsense about isolating Nasser or neutralizing him as you call it? I want him destroyed. Can't you understand? I want him murdered. They don't give a damn. There's anarchy and chaos in Egypt. After he's dead, I want you to dig up his body and put his head on a pike on the Tower of London like Oliver Cromwell. God save the Queen. The last part, he didn't he didn't say the stuff about Cromwell, but the rest of it is a direct quote, which I wrote here. And these guys, they were, this is the stakes for them. They were like, we need to kill this guy. Stop saying liquidate, murder him, murder him, right? This is what, what they're saying. So in the end, the, the U.S., uh, backs Nasser because there's this big confrontation. The Soviet Union sees this as aha, look, more colonialism, the same old thing. It puts, and so the US, for a number of factors, decides to back Nasser. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I think this is a really pivotal moment because it's an example of how the US was trying to exert its control over European imperialism. You talk about a hostile takeover of the British Empire. This is a clear example. So talk more about why the U.S. did not side with Britain, France, and Israel in the Suez crisis. Of course, I should point out that it was really in 1967 when, with the Six-Day War, when Israel uh, colonized large parts of Egypt and Jordan and Syria. And that was the moment really when apartheid Israel became like a key joined at the hip ally of the U.S. empire. Before that, it was more of an extension of the British empire. So this does show that even in the 1950s, there were significant differences, foreign policy differences between the U.S. empire and the British and French empires. Yes, and we likely do not know everything that was going on at this time uh, regarding the Suez crisis. I believe that, I, that Jim Diogenio has, has talked or written about Alan Dulles perhaps playing a double game here and not operating on the side of Eisenhower and perhaps giving some sort of wink to the, the British, Israel, uh, French side about Nasser. But, uh, you know, somebody else could do a little more research on that. I was able to find this quote from uh, in David Talbot's book, Devil's Chessboard, where he talks about Alan Dulles. Um, and they were over at Walter Lippmann's house one night. And one of them asks about Nasser and jests to Alan Dulles, Alan, can't you find an assassin? And Alan Dulles, to the surprise of, everybody's, of everybody in the group, says, well, first you would need a fanatic, a man who'd be willing to kill himself if he were caught. Uh, and he couldn't be an outsider. He'd have to be an Arab. It would be very difficult to find just the right man. So they presumably, you know, the U.S. and the Brits were using these Muslim Brotherhood guys, just like they used radical Islamists to try to kill uh, Sukarno. But in the end, the U.S. does, and Eisenhower decides to back Nasser, and it's it, it speaks to the position that the U.S. was in at the time, and the fact that the U.S. was really playing a complicated game to establish hegemony over global capitalism and to transform the colonial regimes of Europe into this neo-colonial project overseen by the U.S. that needs to pretend it's not neo-colonial, that needs to pretend it's not imperialist. And so this is similar to, in a, in a way, you can look at this as being similar to what the U.S. did with civil rights. Like Eisenhower himself appointed um, 
the Earl Warren, who presided over many, you know, Brown versus Board of Education and so on. And the for the U.S., the establishment, even people like John Foster Dulles, they were actually in favor of civil rights to a degree and ending Jim Crow if they could do it without political, big political consequences, because people around the world were coming up to American diplomats in the third world where the U.S. wanted to extend its influence. And they had copies of this report, We Charge Genocide, about the brutality of the U.S. against black people at home. And so people in the third world who are not white people would see this and say, the U.S. is no, no friend of ours. Look at what they do at home. So civil rights was an embarrassment. And the establishment turns against the Jim Crow South. Uh, you can't really understand civil rights and how it was able to succeed without getting that or without dealing with the fact that the establishment media, which is often so terrible, did provide sympathetic coverage and turn a lot of the rest of America outside of the South against the Jim Crow regime, when in years past, they had not done so. So this well, and, is and important also huge, to recognize. A huge part of that narrative was also, the, this is of course at the peak of the first Cold War, and the narrative was that the Soviet Union is exploiting our Jim Crow policies to show the entire world how racist we are. I mean, the Soviet Union was doing that, but that's that's actually good. Like, of course, showing the racism and white supremacy of Jim Crow. So that was actually one of the motivating factors, along with the U.S. wars in Korea and Vietnam, because the U.S. needed to desegregate the military in order to wage better war on Korea and Vietnam, because it's hard to wage war when you have these racially segregated, you know, battalions. Yeah, and it makes the and it makes the U.S. look bad, just like the Suez crisis made the U.S. look bad. So they essentially hung them out to dry, and this was a this is no this is recognized as the kind of the end of the British Empire. Really, the, the Britons never anything but a junior partner to U.S. Uh, U.S. imperialism after this. But there's a lot of stories that have come out recently about the British and their role in places like Indonesia and Congo. Uh, and, and a few other areas that the Guardian has written this recently. And it's they almost like put the the emphasis on the British agency here, which is kind of funny because it almost seems like Britain is now acting as like a part of the cover story for the U.S. covert operations that you're going to somehow blame it on the Brits. And like the U.S. is sort of seems to be forcing the Brits into doing this or, or something like self-flagellating in this way, uh, which is which is kind of comical to see. Uh, not that the British aren't guilty of all these things, but they're typically side uh, side actors in following the command of the U.S. So here, the U.S. hung them out to dry, and this is known as a turning point in the history. Uh, perhaps some of these recent things like the, the U.S. misadventures in Ukraine will ultimately come to be seen as being similar in the U.S. case and the decline of the U.S. empire, as every empire has its origin story and also its decline and demise story. Uh, so the Americas is being written now. Uh, but that was the British one, and that was it for them. No, that's exactly why I said there are some similarities today where we see the U.S. empire pressuring Europe to commit economic suicide over this proxy war with Russia. Not that there aren't a lot of more than willing, you know, uh, victims who are who are willing to not victims is the wrong word. Not that there are uh, uh, not that there is a shortage of more than willing collaborators in Europe who are willing to sacrifice their own populations and their own economies. At the altar of U.S. imperialism, but uh, you know there definitely are some interesting historical parallels here. And Michael Hudson has been saying this for years, and I think he's been proven right that one of the main enemies of the U.S. empire from the beginning was not only a lot of these countries in the global south, not only the Soviet Union, it was Europe, 
it, it was uh, specifically the British Empire that was just gobbled up by the U.S. Empire. But Aaron, as we wrap up here, can you can you just reflect on the similarities between these two case studies that we looked at that happened in the Eisenhower era, Indonesia and Egypt? What what do these two? Uh, you know, it, it, might, it might seem like in the 1950s is not super relevant today, but what do these two case studies back in the 50s say about the history of the U.S. empire going forward and leading up to today? Yeah, they're very important in terms of understanding the arc of the history of the global south uh, at the post-World War II. Uh, the U.S. had to be overtly supportive of decolonization while the deep state worked you know, around the clock to undermine both of the countries we've talked about today in order to eventually place them under neo-colonial subjugation. Uh, in both countries, the U.S. wanted to assassinate these nationalist leaders, uh, Nasser and Sukarno, with plausible deniability using Islamist fanatics uh, because that's what was available to them. Uh, that's and and that's, of course, that's exactly what they did with Gaddafi in 2011 in Libya. That's what NATO did. And that's what they tried to do in Syria. Yeah. After 2011, same tactic. And, and Khashoggi, probably fearing, or, uh, MBS, fearing Khashoggi and his connections to the Muslim Brotherhood, thought, I don't want to end up like uh, Gaddafi and like what they tried to do to Nasser. Maybe they killed Nasser later, but we can talk about that when we get to 1967. Um, but in this case, they were trying to get rid of Nasser and Sukarno. And if you look at this, even we've talked about Iran also uh, in the past episode, uh, in Indonesia, Egypt, and Iran, the Islamists were these useful fanatics that the, the U.S. could use to advance economic and geopolitical goals of this Wall Street-dominated American deep state. In Iran, the, it's obviously the oil that is key. In Indonesia, there were all these lucrative enterprises that the Dutch, you know, uh, were rewarded by uh, for, you know, for decades and decades. And there were also these enormous reserves in um in West Papua of oil and gold and copper. Uh, and only a select few people like Alan Dulles knew about these. So Alan Dulles and, you know, the Rockefellers at the top of the standard oil, you know, Sullivan Cromwell corporate elite would have known about this, but it, would have, it was very closely guarded. In Egypt, the Suez was a very valuable choke point for world trade and the petroleum trade. And really it traded in any commodities from uh, Southern, the Southeast or East Asia with, uh, with West Europe. Uh, it had previously been really important for Britain with the opium trade and British colonies in India, Malaysia, Burma, Hong Kong. But as I said, the U.S. staged a hostile takeover of the British Empire. And the denouement of all this was basically the Suez crisis. And the rest is uh, is history, as they say, uh, to the extent that we are we are privy to it. And so, you know, it's our job as sort of critical historians to gather up these things to put a, a narrative about the empire and to really try to focus on those issues that the uh, establishment does not want uh, to be, you know, included in these histories. So this is what I've tried to do here in this series. I do a lot of it in the book and then we're adding some material just to flesh this out here. So I'm happy for the opportunity to do that. Yeah. And it's always a real pleasure for me. I've learned so much from your book and it's always just great to discuss these things as well with you. I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge. Of course, this is the Empire and Deep State series that we've been doing. It is a joint production of Multipolarista and American Exception, and it's based on Aaron's book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. We just finished the history. I guess this puts a pin. This is uh, the end of the chapter on Eisenhower, right? We have and a little next, more on Eisenhower, but 
yeah, well, we probably have one more on Eisenhower to talk about a couple things like the military industrial complex speech and, okay. and so on. So but, not, yeah, not, we're getting not, close not to not the end. Yeah, we're not yet going to JFK. Still a little bit more. But as I said earlier, uh, te technically this is part 16, but I think we're going to stop using numbers just because it's more confusing than helpful. Uh, the series can be found on YouTube. I'll put the link to the playlist below and it is in order. But if you want early access to all episodes on Patreon, you can support the show at patreon.com slash American Exception, where you get early access. And you can also support my show, patreon.com slash Multipolarista. It's a joint production. Uh, any final words, Aaron, before we conclude here? No, I just want to thank Seamus for his uh, contribution today. And he's producing this series and he had to duck out early for work responsibilities. That goes along with having a day job. But uh, shout out to Seamus. And otherwise, thanks a lot, Ben. Yeah, thanks to you, Aaron. And we'll see you all next time.